Okay, so I want to thank the organizers for inviting me today to speak on health maintenance and vaccine needs for IBD. These are my disclosures. So first I want to start by defining what health maintenance is in the mo how's this? Um, first, I want to start off by describing what health maintenance is in the Mosby's Medical Dictionary. So it's a systematic program or procedure planned to prevent illness, maintain maximum function, and promote health. So while we've spent a lot of the morning talking about the time we spend with patients trying to treat active, active disease, work on therapeutic drug monitoring, we can o often overlook uh, the, the little things we can do for patients to help prevent illness. So our goals for the lecture are going to be to review some of the epidemiology for vaccine-preventable illnesses in IBD specifically, look at the updated vaccin vaccination guidelines from the ACG in 2017, review some cancer screening, osteoporosis screening, and smoking cessation. But I also want to point out that I'm not going to cover colorectal cancer screening and depression screening, which we also know are very important to health maintenance in IBD patients. So... We know that infections are the most common significant adverse event among IBD patients on immune suppression. And we have data from the TREAT registry showing us that the risk of serious and opportunistic infections increases with the number of immunosuppressive therapies that patients are on. So these patients are at significant risk for infection. Yet when patients were surveyed in the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation Partners Program, we found that many patients were not receiving vaccinations by their own self-report. With the exception of influenza, the vaccination rates were less than 50% for most of the vaccine-preventable illnesses. Additionally, these patients were surveyed about how many of their gastroenterologists actually took a vaccination history from them, and less than 50% reported having a vaccination history by their gastroenterologists. So where's the problem here? Is I think a lot of the debate really comes down to who's responsible for taking care of the health maintenance of our IBD patients, and there's this push and pull between gastroenterologists and primary care providers about who should be really taking the lead on the vaccinations. And so patients were asked this question specifically in the partners program, and they surveyed almost 1,000 IBD patients asking who's responsible for their vaccinations. Less than 50% said the gastroenterologist was responsible. About 62% said that primary care providers were, were responsible for their vaccinations. And then 60% said it was on the patient themselves to be taking control of their vaccinations. And I think really here this is a spot where gastroenterologists need to take the lead. There was actually a survey of primary care providers in 2011 asking about their comfort level with providing health maintenance care for IBD patients. And only 37% reported comfort across the severity of illnesses uh, in IBD for doing the health maintenance needs. So we really need to take the time to learn about uh, what the health maintenance guidelines are and carrying them out in our patients in consultation with primary care providers. So with that, I'm going to talk about what the latest vaccine recommendations are. I would refer you to the 2017 ACG guidelines. It's a great article, really reviews everything for you. There's also checklists that you can refer to from Cornerstone and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. But hopefully we'll, we'll touch on all the hot topics here. So starting with influenza, we know that uh, IBD patients are at greater risk for inf influenza compared to healthy controls. This is data published this year by Andrew Tinsley at Penn State using market scan uh, data, and 
here you see the incidence ratio uh, for influenza in IBD patients compared to controls was 1.5. And when they looked at various medication risk factors for influenza, only corticosteroids were independently, independently associated with influenza. So just having IBD itself puts you at greater risk. Importantly, when IBD patients get the flu, they have more complications than healthy control patients who get the flu. So in that same study, they looked at the rate of hospitalization uh, for flu, and IBD patients were more significantly, uh, more frequently hospitalized than non-IBD patients who had flu. Uh, there was a non-significant trend toward increased rates of pneumonia after flu in IBD patients as well. So knowing that IBD patients are higher risk for flu and possibly at higher risk for complications related to flu, how can we best vaccinate them? This is data that was presented at DDW this year. Looking at, uh, it was an interesting study uh, where they looked at patients who are on anti-TNF monotherapy, supposing that these patients may have a decreased response to influenza vaccine. And they, compare, they randomized patients to either receiving a high-dose influenza vaccine versus a standard-dose influenza vaccine. And then the outcome was looking at the antibody responses after the vaccine. And they found that patients who received a high-dose influenza vaccine uh, more frequently uh, mounted the appropriate antibody response to the vaccine. So we should be considering that in our immunosuppressed patients, we may, be, may need to use strategies that use higher-dose vaccines. Now, this needs to be tested in... Other, uh, with other immunosuppressive medications beyond anti-TNF therapy, but I think we'll see that research in the coming years. So what exactly are the current guidelines? So all adult patients with IBD should undergo annual vaccination against influenza, and those who are on immunosuppressive therapies in their household contacts should receive the non-live trivalent inactivated influenza vaccine, but not the live inhaled influenza vaccine. And this is really based on the theoretical risk, as there aren't uh, reported cases of uh, a problem from it. Now moving on to pneumonia risk, like flu, IBD patients are independently at higher risk for pneumonia compared to healthy controls. This is data from Millie Long using health claims databases showing that the hazard ratio for pneumonia in IBD patients is 1.54. And that same year there was another study by Ashwin Ananthakrishnan uh, looking at uh, the morbidity of IBD patients admitted to the hospital, and patients who were admitted for pneumonia had increased rates of mortality relative to other reasons for IBD admission to the hospital. So, again, IBD patients are higher risk for pneumonia, and they're higher risk for complications related to their pneumonia. Now, when they tried to tease out you know, some of the medications that may be associated with this increased pneumonia risk, in particular, corticosteroid use and narcotic use are associated with increased risk of pneumonia. So I think this goes back to some of what we talked about earlier today in narcotics, that narcotics were really highlighted as patients we have to think about at high risk uh, for complications, and in this case, pneumonia complications. So similar to what I was saying about the influenza vaccine, patients who are on immunosuppression are less likely to have an adequate response to our pneumococcal vaccination. So this was an interesting study where they compared patients who are on 5-ASA therapy, so not immune suppressed uh, by medications, to patients on anti-TNF monotherapy and anti-TNF combination therapy. And what you see here is that um, in the left two columns, you have the anti-TNF groups. They had decreased uh, responses to the pneumococcal vaccine compared to patients on 
5-ASA therapy. So I think when you're thinking about starting a patient on immune suppression, that's the point at which you really have to use that window of time to vaccinate patients to get the best response. So in terms of the pneumococcal vaccination recommendations, adult patients with IBD who are receiving immunosuppressive therapy should receive pneumococcal vaccination with both the Prevnar 13 and the Pneumovax 23 in accordance with national guidelines. And something that always trips me up is the order in which we give these vaccinations. And so the guidelines are that you should give the Prevnar 13 vaccination first. Then at least eight weeks later, you can give the first dose of the Pneumovax 23. If patients are under the age of 64, then five years after that first dose of Pneumovax 23, they should receive a booster dose of the Pneumovax 23. And then patients over age 65 can again receive another booster dose of the Pneumovax 23. And some important points are that if you wind up giving the Pneumovax 23 first, you can still administer the Prevnar 13. They recommend about a year later because you're going to get a better antibody response at that time. And then if either vaccine is inadvertently administered earlier than the recommended time frame, it's not recommended that you give an additional dose beyond that. Now, there's a lot of attention on herpes zoster with the approval of tofacitinib, uh, but we actually knew even before tofacitinib that IBD patients, again, with herpes zoster are at higher risk compared to healthy controls. So this was another health claims database study by Millie Long establishing that the IBD risk of herpes zoster uh, was a hazard ratio of 1.49. And importantly, this occurs across all age groups. While we usually associate zoster with older patients, Younger IBD patients are also at risk for herpes zoster. Now, being on immunosuppressive therapy increases the risk of herpes zoster, so with biologics, thiopurines, and corticosteroids. But the biggest risk, at least in that health claim study, was combination therapy with anti-TNF and thiopurine with an odds ratio of 3.29. This was a, a study just presented at DDW this year where they looked at hospitalizations in the nationwide inpatient sample uh, for all vaccine-preventable illnesses. And when they looked at herpes zoster, they found that a greater percentage of hospitalizations for these vaccine-preventable illnesses were IBD, a higher higher rate in IBD compared to non-IBD patients. So again, this is just showing that our IBD patients are at higher risk for complications and hospitalization related to their zoster. So in terms of tofacitinib in general, because I know we're all going to be concerned about the risk of herpes zoster as we start using this medication, this was a study just published that looked at uh, combining all the data from the OCTAVE trials. And I would focus you to the right side of the chart where they combined the overall cohort, phase 2, phase 3, and open-label extension. And you can see that in the 5-milligram dosing of tofacitinib, the the incidence ratio of herpes zoster was 3.45. And on the higher dose, the risk is higher. Uh, with, a, with a ratio of 4.25. And obviously this increases with increasing age as well. Now I think an important point from that article is also that this risk of herpes zoster remains stable over the entire course of treatment. So it's not that you're necessarily going to see it right at the beginning, you can see it at any time point. So we have to really uh, be focusing on that. So in terms of the zoster vaccination recommendations, the current guidelines are that Adults with IBD over the age of 50 should consider vaccination against herpes zoster, including certain subgroups of immunosuppressed patients. And in terms of what our options are for vaccination, uh, in the past all we had was the Zostavax uh, vaccine, which is a live attenuated vaccine given as one dose. It's approved for patients over the age of 50. And you can only give that to patients who either are not on immune suppression or on low-dose immune suppression. 
And the way low-dose immune suppression is defined is prednisone doses less than 20 milligrams, thiopurine doses generally uh, greater than the doses we actually use in IBD, and also methotrexate doses greater than the doses we use in IBD. So, in fact, many of our patients may have actually been eligible to use the Zostavax vaccine as you define low, low immune suppression. Fortunately, now we have the Shingrix vaccine also, which is an inactivated vaccine given in two doses at time zero and then two to six months later. It's also approved for patients over the age of 50, and this can be used in lower high-dose immune suppression. Now, the problem with this vaccine is really the national shortage and the difficulty in getting it. Uh, but if you have a patient who's not on, let's say, anti-TNF therapy, maybe on what we define as low-dose immune suppression, you can still consider using the Zostavax. Now, in terms of the, the new Shingrix vaccine, uh, it's not recommended to give it during an active herpes zoster infection, but there is no specified waiting period after the infection is over. Uh, there's no need to screen for pyovirocella infection in patients over 50, and that's really just because everybody's probably been exposed and their, their ability to report an accurate history on their exposure is, is not good. And then the only word of caution I would use here is that Shingrix hasn't been studied in patients under the age of 50. So we really don't know what the possible immunologic effects on a young IBD patient getting this vaccine are. I think many of us will still probably use it, but I, this is something that hopefully we'll get some guidance from in real-world studies going forward. Uh, moving on to the hepatitis B vaccine, uh, healthy adults should usually mount an adequate response to a three-dose hepatitis B vaccine. So 90% will have titers over 10 international units per liter. However, IBD patients don't mount that same uh, response to the hepatitis B, vaccine, hepatitis B vaccine. So this was a study from uh, 2012 in the Red Journal where they looked at uh, vaccinating IBD patients either on anti-TNF therapy or not on anti-TNF therapy with a high-dose, three-dose regimen. And what you see here in the left columns is that uh, about 59% of patients overall mounted an adequate antibody response to the first three doses of the hepatitis B vaccine. In this study, they took all patients who had less than 100 international units per liter after the, after the first three-dose regimen and then revaccinated them with another course of high-dose hepatitis B vaccine. What you see in the orange column on the right is that about 79% after two successive three-course uh, hepatitis B vaccine regimens were able to get an antibody response of 10 international units per liter, which is still less than what we would expect in healthy controls. So I think the point here is that IBD patients don't mount adequate responses to the, to the standard hepatitis B vaccination series, and we may have to consider revaccinating them. And so the guidelines for this are from ACG that we should check hepatitis B titers before immunization. We should vaccinate with three doses at one, one to two months, and then four to six months. And we should be checking the titers after that first three-dose vaccination series to make sure that, that they've achieved adequate levels. And if there's no response, then we should revaccinate and potentially double the dose of the hepatitis B vaccine. And I put the, the ECHO guidelines here as well, just because they make a strong point about the fact that higher doses of the immunizing antigen may be required to provide protection, and that maintenance of the antibody should be monitored in patients because they can lose that protection over time. I'm not going to spend too much time on the other inactivated vaccines other than, other than to say that we should be giving them as per CDC guidelines, so that's Tdap being given uh, one dose age 11 to 64 with uh, tetanus boosters every 10 years, 
giving hepatitis A vaccine, uh, the HPV vaccine in men and women 11 to 26 years old, and then in high-risk patients considering the meningitis vaccine. Now, in terms of the live virus vaccine, some of the key points that came across through the guidelines are that uh, for varicella vaccine, the mumps, measles, rubella, adults should be assessed for their prior exposure to varicella and vaccinated if they're naive or absent titers prior to the initiation of immunosuppressive therapy when possible. So that gets to the question that Marla was bringing up about whether there was more than one answer. Uh, for yellow fever, uh, you should really advise your patients to go see a travel medicine doctor, especially if they're on immunosuppression because they wouldn't be eligible uh, to have the yellow fever vaccine. Uh, live attenuated influenza virus and BCG vaccine should be avoided in immunosuppressed patients. Healthy immunocompetent individuals living in the same home as immunocompromised patients should receive their live vaccines as indicated by the CDC. The one exception here is if a varicella vaccine is given and the person develops a related rash to it, then they should avoid contact with the immunosuppressed patient. And then highly immunocompromised patients should avoid handling the diapers of infants vaccinated with the rotavirus vaccine for at least four weeks. And this is actually in the guidelines. So putting it all together, uh, in terms of the timing in IBD patients. Once you have a patient who's diagnosed with IBD, you should check their immunization status for MMR, varicella, hepatitis B, and hepatitis A. Uh, if you're considering a live and live attenuated virus vaccine, you do have a window of time before starting immune suppression where you can give these vaccines, which is about four weeks. So if you're planning to start immunosuppressive therapy within four weeks, and I'm defining immunosuppression as anti-TNF, high-dose steroids, and those sorts of medications, then you can't give a live virus vaccine. And once they're on immune suppression, you have to wait at least three months after stopping to give those live virus vaccines. Inactivated vaccines can give it a, be given at any time point uh, over the course of therapy, whether they're on immune suppression or not, and they should be given by guidelines. So with that, we're gonna finish up with some of the cancer screening, osteoporosis, and smoking cessation. So women with IBD carry a higher risk for cervical dysplasia uh, than the general population, though it's unclear if this translates into an increased risk of actual cervical cancer. And we know that immunomodulator use increases this risk of cervical dysplasia, especially with longer durations of immunomodulator use. Now, interestingly, the same effect hasn't been shown for anti-TNF drugs. And again, in health claims data from Millie Long, we know that women with IBD aren't being adequately screened for cervical dysplasia. And she found that about one-third of women with IBD weren't receiving the recommended uh, pap smear screening uh, in the correct intervals. And the only things associated with improved screening were having a primary care provider or an OBGYN who was helping the gastroenterologist to direct that care. And interestingly, one of the things associated with decreased screening was being on immunosuppressive medications, which is ironic considering those are the patients who we know are at increased risk for cervical dysplasia. So what are the guidelines for cervical cancer uh, screening? Well, women with IBD fit guidelines for uh, increased cancer screening, which is just defined as immunocompromised patients. So by that definition, all women should get, be getting annual pap smears. Uh, we should also be considering the HPV vaccine in all women ages 9 to 26 years old, although the risk is apparent even up to age 45. And then we should also consider the fact that anal cancers are associated with HPV. So if you have patients who are having receptive anal intercourse, then they could be at risk uh, there as well. 
For skin cancer, we know that approximately one in five Americans will develop a skin cancer by the age of 70. Non-melanoma skin cancers, including basal and squamous cell carcinoma, have been implicated in an annual incidence of 3 million. Um, though there's no documented, documented increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancer at baseline for IBD patients uh, when you adjust for medication use. Melanoma skin cancer is less common, on the other hand, but more severe, accounting for most of the deaths related to skin cancer in the United States. And as opposed to the non-melanoma skin cancers, melanoma has been independently associated with uh, IBD, independent of the treatments. So as we've moved to using more immunosuppressive and anti-TNF therapies, we've learned more about how that may impact uh, the incidence of various skin cancers. So the top chart is from the SESAM cohort, and this was looking at the risk of non-melanoma skin cancers as it relates to current use of thiopurines, past use of thiopurines, and not ever using thiopurines. And what was interesting here is that not only were patients currently using thiopurines at risk for non-melanoma skin cancers, but just having a history of thiopurine use uh, increased your risk. So that persists, and we should be screening these patients even if they had any history at all of thiopurine use. In the lower chart, you see that uh, anti-TNF therapy has been associated with increased risk of melanoma. So uh, it's sort of the, the flip association. So in terms of the guidelines for melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancer, patients with IBD should undergo screening for melanoma independent of the use of biologic therapy because of that association with IBD. IBD patients on immunomodulators, uh, specifically thiopurine, should undergo screening for non-melanoma squamous cell cancer while using these ag agents, particularly over the age of 50. And then based on that SESAM study, surveillance strategies should be maintained after stopping therapy. We should be including the potential uh, risk of skin cancers in our discussions with our risk-benefit discussions with patients when deciding on therapy, and we should be counseling them on adequate sun protection and early awareness of suspicious lesions. I advise my patients to see a dermatologist yearly. I counsel them on using SPF greater than 30 when they're in the sun and reapplying every two hours. Um, just to touch on osteoporosis guidelines. Patients who have conventional risk factors for abnormal, abnormal bone mineral density should undergo screening for osteoporosis with DEXA scanning, both at diagnosis and then periodically after diagnosis. And those risk factors and who we should be worried about are prolonged steroid use over three months for any one period or recurrent doses, history of low trauma or fragility fracture, postmenopausal women, hypogonadism, maternal history of osteoporosis, and then those who are malnourished or amenorrheic. And then lastly, just to touch on smoking, we all know about the association of smoking and Crohn's disease, and this is maybe the, the biggest modifiable risk factor for patients that they have complete control over. Uh, so just to, to reinforce that smoking is associated with increased risk of penetrating or stricturing Crohn's, it's associated with increased risk of perianal disease, increased need for biologics, smoking makes our Crohn's medications less effective, and it increases the risk for post-op recurrence. And in those who uh, continue to smoke, it increases the risk for additional surgery. So, importantly, we need to be re readdressing this with patients who are actively smoking at every visit. So, in summary, our health maintenance and vac vaccinations are a shared responsibility of gastroenterologists, primary care providers, and patients, but we should really be taking the lead on this to, to keep our patients well. 
We need to take detailed vaccination histories at IBD diagnosis and administer the vaccinations per current guidelines prior to immune suppression when possible. Uh, we should be performing routine cancer screening of the IBD patient. Uh, osteoporosis screening should be performed in patients with conventional risk factors, and we should be reinforcing smoking cessation.